whether or not our relationship with money is one that is aligned with God's heart and his purposes. Jeff helped us identify that there are these key root sins which have a tendency to trip us up in all our life, but including um, they distort our relationship to money. However, thanks to the work that Jesus did on the cross, we can have the gift of the Holy Spirit who is working inside each believer, transforming us by the renewing of our mind, Romans 12, 2. And what this means is that as God does the transformative work in our life, as this fruit of the Spirit is being developed in our life, we can begin to counter these, these vices with the virtues that are listed on the screen. And slowly but surely, we can become the kind of people who have a right relationship with money. So what does that kind of a person look like? Well, really practically, Jeff said last week that it looks like a person who avoids debt. Now we know that that is pretty much impossible in our day and age, but it also means to have a good relationship with debt and uh, paying off debt diligently, not incurring unnecessary debt. It's a person who saves prudently which is very different than hoarding because of a scarcity mindset, right? There's a difference there. It's someone who spends strategically, not just impulse buying, whatever I feel like today. And it's a person who lives generously. And for today, I want to hone back in on that word. I want to come back what we addressed in week one in this series, and that is living generously. Generosity is a theme throughout scripture and it's a key character trait of who God is and also who he has made humans to be in his image. Generosity is at the heart of God's purpose for money. Money and resources are a gift from God. Yes, to bless us and to help us flourish. Don't minimize that. And it is a resource that we are invited to extend outward so that we can be a blessing to others and help others flourish as well. And so it all kind of comes back to this theme of generosity. And in week one, we highlighted some key barriers that are actively kind of keeping us from becoming a generous person. Number one, because of our fallen nature, we just happen to be self-centered creatures. Number two, our culture is not really set up to give and receive. It's set up to buy and sell and negotiate. And number three is that without a right understanding of who God is, then we will all struggle with a scarcity mindset, this disposition that there's not enough. So how do we bridge the gap? How do we move from being self-centered to truly generous? How do we move from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset? How do we become the type of people whose relationship with money is in line with God's heart and his purposes. We said that it begins by coming to see God for who he truly is. And so our question today is, who is God? What is your understanding of who God is? Because our perspective of, of who God is actually matters a great deal because who we perceive God to be will directly impact our relationship with money, our ability to be generous, and it's going to impact our whole faith expression. So the question becomes, is my image of God the right one? 
Is your understanding of who God is the right understanding? Theologian uh, Miroslav Volf, in his book, Free of Charge, which uh, credit where credit is due, I am basing this message series on uh, this book. Uh, I'm using it as a guide. He talks about how the Bible teaches us that we are created in God's image, but that all too often we have a tendency to try and fit God into an image we create. Excuse me. There's confusion between God's reality and God's image. And he says, and this is kind of provocative and a little bit, whoa, he says, we may think we are worshiping the true God, when in reality we might be worshiping an idol, a distorted image of who God is. Let's take, for example, the image of American white Jesus who is militaristic, who's patriotic, who's muscular. In this picture, he kind of looks like a millennial too. And and a picture of Western masculinity, right? Is this picture an accurate picture of who Jesus was? No, it's not a trick question. No, it's not. It really isn't. It's a false image that people have created of who Jesus is. And we can laugh at it because this particular image seems so ridiculous to us, right? But the truth is that our cultures influence and shape our perspectives on reality and on who God is a lot more than we might be aware of. Wolf writes this. I'm sorry for the block text, but this was just too good to not share. Believers don't deny the existence of God, nor would they admit to worshiping anything created. Okay, we're on the same page, right? Here's the problem, though. They simply assume that who they believe God to be and who God truly is are one and the same. But in fact, our images of God are rather different from God's reality. Because the most powerful and seductive images of God are not the ones that we craft in the privacy of our hearts, right, in our devotion times. He says the most powerful ones are the ones that seep into our minds as we watch TV, as we read books, as we go shopping at the mall, or socialize with our neighbors. And this book was written a number of years ago, so I think by now he would add by our phones, by our social media. Slowly and perceptibly, the one true God begins acquiring the features of the gods of this world. For instance, our God simply gratifies our desires rather than reshaping them in accordance with the beauty of God's own character. Or our God then kills enemies rather than dying on their behalf as God did in Jesus Christ. So how might we be duped into creating false images of God? How might, we might, how might we have a distorted image of who God is that we're not maybe even aware of? He mentions two common ones in this book, and they're not extensive. I think there's more. But these are two common ones, he says, that are pretty prevalent in Western culture. The first one is the negotiator God. People who worship the negotiator God They want all the advantages that God offers, right? Like eternal life, success, prosperity, health, a free ticket to heaven, you name it. But they are not actually interested in loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so what do they do? They negotiate. They say, God, I promise to do X if you give me Y. 
or they flip it around, right? God, if you give me X, then I will do Y. If you give me a successful career, then I'll start tithing to the church. Or if you give me health and wealth, I promise that I'll read my Bible every day. Or if you give me my dream car or my dream house, I promise I'll quit that bad habit. Or whatever your thing is, we try to negotiate instead of fully surrendering our lives to God. And these same people then get upset with God when they fulfill their end of the bargain, but they feel like God didn't uphold his end. I'm reading my Bible, God. Why didn't you hold up your end in this deal? Ah, Did God actually agree to the negotiation? No. No, because God does not buy or sell or negotiate. God gives. The second common way that we make a false image of God is the Santa Claus God. What is Santa Claus like? He's jolly. He gives warm smiles and listens to everyone's Christmas wishes on his lap. He kind of comes out of nowhere once a year just to scatter gifts, to blissfully affirm everyone no matter what they've been doing or who they are. And he doesn't require anything prior or after dispensing his gifts. Well, maybe a vague be nice and not naughty, right? But beyond that, he just kind of disappears into nowhere again. And in other words, the Santa Claus God is a God who gives gifts, but doesn't interfere with my life. The Santa Claus idol of God is a very prevalent one in our culture. And it might sound something like this. God, I I want your grace and your forgiveness, but don't, don't interfere with my sexuality. God, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take the gift of eternal life, but you know what? Uh, don't, like, don't interfere with my entertainment or my leisure choices. I'll, I'll participate in a good worship session once in a while, God, to be filled with your spirit and the, and the good warm fuzzies, but don't interfere with my relationship choices. I'll receive material blessings, God. I totally acknowledge that every good gift is from you, but don't tell me how to use my money. But I'll see you on Sunday, God. Maybe, if I feel like it. Worshippers of Santa Claus God are actually happy to acknowledge God as the giver of all good things. But they tend to forget or minimize or ignore that we were created for a purpose, to be in some significant way like God in this world. So how do we let God break apart our false idols of him? Well, first, we need to look in the right places. We need to know where to get an accurate picture of who God is. And as Christians, we find God to be revealed most fully in Jesus Christ, as witnessed in the scriptures, God's written word. And second, and this one actually gets minimized or gets forgotten about much in in Western individualized culture, the second way that God reveals himself through his is through his community, through the church body being the body of Christ. So I have to ask myself, what is shaping my view of reality? What is shaping my view of myself and of others and of who God is? Is the word of God and the community of God shaping my views 
of reality of who I am and who God is? Or are my views shaped more by Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, right-wing media, left-wing media, and the culture around us? The thing is, we are constantly being shaped. The question is simply, what is shaping me the most? If we want God to break down our false idols, then the influence of his word and his community have to be stronger in our life than the influence of our screen and our culture. We need, second, we need a ready heart and an openness to God's self-revelation. And this is something that we can't do for you. Everyone has to ask themselves, am I actually open to having my false notions of who God is broken? Am I actually ready to receive from the community of God and the word of God the truth about who God is? Or am I actually kind of settling for the comforts that the Santa Claus God offers me? He doesn't offer any demand. He doesn't demand anything. It's pretty comfortable to settle for that picture of God. Or do I want to settle for the negotiator God? I kind of want to keep God at arm's length. I'll do some things, but I don't want to surrender my life to him. There has to be an openness and a willingness if we want false images of God to be broken down in our life. But then our question becomes, well, what are the right images of God? Well, let's put this into practice. Let's look in the right place. If you have your Bibles, you can kind of track with me real quick here. But page one in the Bible, Genesis 1, gives us a picture of God as a generous creator. Right In Genesis 1, we see that God creates a world of abundance and goodness. In verse 11, Genesis 1.11, God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. What does that have to do with anything? Think about it. God creates these things called plants that Jeff was just talking about. And they bear an abundance of food. And not only that, he designs them to also produce seeds so that essentially there will be more abundant fruit. And then in verses 20 to 25, God fills the sky, the water, and the land with living creatures. And what's his first blessing to all the animals? To be fruitful and increase in numbers. God's first blessing is one of abundance. Then in verse 28, God makes humankind in his image. He puts them in charge of the world. And what is his blessing to them? He says, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. What does that word subdue mean? It doesn't mean exploit, but it means to bring about its full potential. So if any of you are gardeners out there, if, you're, uh, if you've planted a tomato plant and you, you prune it, and you train it up on a trellis, what are you doing? You're subduing it. What's the purpose of that? It's to bring out the tomatoes plant's full potential, right? You know that if you're going to prune it, you're going to water it, you're going to weed the garden, you're going to train it up on a trellis, that it's actually going to bring out its full potential and bring about even more and better fruit. God's blessings and design throughout creation is one of generous abundance and goodness. And by placing humans in charge of the world, he's actually inviting humans to participate in bringing about even more goodness and abundance into this world. 
This story in Scripture, if we're paying attention, tells us that every good thing you and I have is a gift from God. Everything. And if that's true, then there's nothing that I can offer to God that was not already a gift from Him to begin with. Think about that for a second. That's a hard one to believe sometimes. That, that notion might even be offensive to some people. What do you mean that we can't offer God anything that wasn't already a gift from Him to begin with? Really? Yes, really. Romans 11, 35-36 says, Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. And someone might still protest and say, Well, that's not true. I work hard for my money. I have put a lot of effort into developing my skills and my education. I've earned what I have. Ah, well, I counter you, Deuteronomy 8.18. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. It is all gift from him. And why am I hammering on this point? Why is it so important that we get this right? Why is it crucial for Christians to really get it in their head and in their heart that every good thing is a gift from God? What difference does it make? Because when we don't, we wrong the giver. When we play when we claim God's gifts as our own achievement, it's plagiarism, right? Plagiarism is stealing an idea of an author. If I were not to give Miroslav Volf all the credit for this message, because that is the book I'm using as a guide, it would be plagiarism. I'm stealing something that is not actually mine and claiming it as my own, right? Wolf writes that the main sin against God is when we are poor receivers of God's gifts. He says, here's how sin works in relation to God the giver. All things are from God and through God, and yet we want to be independent of God, standing on our own two feet, claiming God's gifts as our own achievement. This idea of independence from God. It's the oldest sin in the Bible, right? It's actually the main reason Karl Marx was an atheist. Because he realized that if indeed God is real and all good things are from him, that means we are dependent on him. And he didn't like that idea because that interfered with his idea of human independence. Why is this so bad? Wolf continues, he says, Assertion of independence pride of achievement, sense of entitlement, and absolute right to dispose with our good as we see fit, those are the ways we live in contradiction to who we actually are in relation to God. But here's the good news. To live in sync with who we truly are means to recognize that we are dependent on God. It means to be grateful to the giver and to be attentive to the purpose for which his gifts are given. In other words, when we believe that what we have is of our own independent achievement, we're not going to be grateful people. We're going to be proud. We will not see it as a gift to be shared, but rather as our exclusive possessions to hold on to. 
We will not be responsible stewards of God's gifts, but we'll feel entitled to spend it however we want. Put another way, we'll fall right back into those seven deadly sins that Jeff mentioned the last week. When we claim God's gifts as our own achievement, we wrong the giver. And the truth is, we all do it sometimes. I do it too. But this brings us to our next beautiful, true image of who God is. God the Redeemer. Volf points out that in Scripture we see that God not only gives as a creator, but because we sin against him and are at times, let's face it, pretty bad receivers of his gifts, God also forgives us for not properly receiving his gifts. But it gets better. He doesn't just stop at forgiveness. He then gives us another gift. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take it a step further. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit to train you, to shape you, to actually enable you to receive my gifts properly. We have an awesome God, friends. Think about it. If we, as humans, (laughs) if we suck at receiving God's gifts, this is where it would make total sense for God to be a negotiator God, right? He would be totally justified in saying, well, since you're not appreciative of my gifts, I'm going to withhold my generosity from you. I will only give you gifts if you can climb out of that sin that you're trapped in. But God doesn't work that way. He's not a negotiator God. This is what makes our God so incredibly compelling. This is the gospel, friends, that God gives to us even when we are unworthy receivers. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, not once we've figured things out and gotten everything right, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're not like a super charismatic church, but can, I, can we get an amen for that? I think so, right? Yeah. God gives gifts. God cancels the debt that we incur by improperly receiving them. And then God gives us the ability to receive them well. These are the true images of God. God, the generous creator. God, the merciful redeemer. So what then is my proper response to God? Does God's generosity somehow oblige us to respond? Yeah, the answer is yes, it does. Remember, God is not a Santa Claus God who just dispenses presents without inviting a response from us. His gifts are not conditional. Again, he's not a negotiator. He doesn't say, once you shape up your life, I will give to you. He says, no, I will give freely to you. He starts by a posture of, I'm giving this to you for free, unconditionally. But those gifts are intended to evoke a response. So what is that response? In Romans 12.1, Paul says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, okay, in view of God's goodness, his generosity, his mercy towards us, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The word uh, bodies here in Greek is somas, which refers not just to the bone and flesh, like it actually means the whole person. In other words, in view of this generous and merciful God, everything we do in our bodies, including how we 
see our resources and use our resources is to be an offering to God, an act of worship to Him. So how do we begin to put that concept into practice? Well, in his, Vol- in his book, Wolf mentions four ways that are proper responses to God's generosity. First of all is faith. Faith is trusting God to be a perfect giver, right? To be the good host that we talked about in week one. It is to acknowledge God as the giver and us as the receivers. Faith then moves us to our next proper response, which is gratitude, thankfulness. Faith and gratitude, they're like two sides of the same coin, but at the same time, there's a progression from faith to gratitude. Wolf says, if faith is the ability to receive gifts, gratitude is the ability to receive them well. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 reminds us the, uh, about the practice of gratitude. It says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, not for all circumstances, but in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Next, proper response is availability. We touched on that already. Are you available to respond to God's generosity? Are you able to say to God, God, you have given me my resources. You've given me my influence, my skill set, my education, my work, my relationships. How do you want me to steward your gifts this day? That'd be a great way to start every morning, is to be thankful before God. God, thank you for my family. Thank you for my work. Thank you for the beautiful area we live in. Thank you for the freedom we have. Thank you, thank you, thank you. God, how do you want me to use your gifts this day? And then the fourth response to God's generosity is participation. Just like faith and gratitude go hand in hand, so do availability and participation. Wolf notes that God's gifts aim at making us into generous givers, not just fortunate receivers. And in the book, he describes God's generosity like the flow of a river. He's borrowing from Martin Luther, who actually loved to use the metaphor of God's generosity as a a flow, as a stream. So if God's generosity is like a river that is flowing into each of our lives, How do we respond to that flow of generosity? Does it stop with us? Do we build a dam to stop the flow from continuing? Or, and this is the invitation, I think, to me, to you, do we become like distributary channels that branch off from the main river, distributing the flow of generosity as far and as wide in all directions? Isn't this a beautiful image? Take, for example, our own lake just outside these windows, right? Kootenai Lake, it turns into Kootenai River just outside of Nelson. And then once it gets to Castlegar, it bends south and becomes the the mighty Columbia River, which goes all the way down to Portland, Oregon and into the ocean. But along the way, the Columbia River has all these distributary channels, which themselves are filled with the water of that main source but they branch out into all directions and areas 
and distribute the water everywhere. That is what our participation with God's generosity can look like when our images of God are correct, informed by scripture, informed by Christian community, and when our response to his generosity, our faith, gratitude, availability, and participation. Amen.